Can you dream of a world immune to cancer? Hello everyone, my name is Nick and I'm the host of the annual live stream for The Cure where content creators and podcasters from around the world join me to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute and Immunotherapy Research, which is training the body's immune system to fight against all forms of cancer. Over the past seven years, thanks to the power of indie podcasters and the indie podcasting community and listeners just like you listening to this right now, we have raised over $90,000. And as I record this now, the eighth annual live stream for The Cure is barreling down upon us really, really quickly in just about two weeks. So join us, please, from May 29th through June 1st for 48 hours of amazing content from people all over the world and help us fight for a world immune to cancer. And I'll return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Thank you so, so much. And together, we can make a difference. Man-made terror. Hungry jaws of death. Y'all don't cross my depths. I'll pause your breaths. I cause you to sink down 40,000 leagues, bleeding to death with no arms and short sleeves. My world's deep blue. Killers gotta eat too. Looking for human flesh to rip my teeth through. Other fish in the sea, but barracudas aren't equal to a half-human predator created by a needle. Jet black eyes, baby they stare while you sleep. When your Titanic sinks, I'm the one you're gonna meet. Hearing terrified screams, they surround my team. All you see is trails of blood. Even God won't intervene. Nightmares of darkness. My appetite is heartless. Even if we related, you eliminated regardless in the deep blue underwater walls. Half man, half shark. My jaws don't fall. In a world overflowing with movies, we need a hero. Someone to separate the bad from the good. Hi everyone, I'm Em and welcome to Verbal Diorama episode 146, Deep Blue Sea. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. Welcome to Verbal Diorama, to all of you wonderful brand new listeners to this podcast and welcome back regular returning listeners. Sorry there has been a bit of delay in coming back but thank you for being here and thank you for choosing this podcast. No matter how you found Verbal Diorama, I'm genuinely so happy that you're here for the history and legacy of DBC. You may have noticed there was no episode last week. There was supposed to be an episode on The Crow. And that's because this podcast has suffered a bit of a loss just recently. For 145 episodes, my cat Jess has been an audible presence, either on episodes or just heard in the background. And basically, she's always been here. I paused production on The Crow because she was obviously ill and we spent several days going back and forth to the vet. Her test results came back and her prognosis was actually really good. The very next morning, though, she passed away. 
she was one week away from turning 18, which is an amazing age for a cat. Genuinely, there are not many cats that live to that amazing age. But that means that there's a big jet-shaped hole in my life and in this podcast. But I wanted to carry on and I wanted to do an episode for her. I don't know if you realise, I'm actually struggling to talk about this right now. But I wanted to do an episode for her. I wanted to pay tribute to her and to celebrate her. And basically to talk about something that she actually really loved to watch. Fish. We lived with my parents for about six years. And my parents had a fish pond in the garden. And she would love to watch the fish in this fish pond. So I wanted to do an episode for her. And basically, there is nothing bigger than big and smart fish. I am going to talk more about Jess at the end of this episode, if I can actually do it. But I wanted to let you know why there was a delay in coming back after my best friend's wedding. And also to say, I don't think that I can quite bring myself to talk about the crow right now, because obviously that includes a very public real life death. And to be honest, I'm not very emotionally stable enough to talk about death right now. So the crow will happen on this podcast in a few weeks time, once I feel a little bit happier to do the crow. But instead of talking about some real life death, I wanted to talk about Samuel L. Jackson getting ripped in half because why not? I also wanted to say Firstly, a huge thank you to everyone for kind of sticking with me through a really tough time. I can't tell you how difficult it's been because the relationship that you have with, you know, anyone really over the course of almost 18 years. And Jess was literally the greatest cat in the world. Like, I can't tell you enough how amazing she was every day. But I also wanted to say huge thank you to everyone who has basically stuck with me throughout this podcast. Who listened to the the animation season episodes that I did. I did loads of those. (laughs) Absolutely loads. Like 12 episodes on animation. As well as the previous episode on my best friend's wedding. And to be honest, I did plan a pretty huge month of March for the podcast. And obviously March really hasn't gone as I planned. But hopefully you'll still enjoy this trip to Aquatica. For maybe the second best shark movie. And what I will say is... Get your shark fin hats ready because this is going to be quite a ride. Here's the trailer for Deep Blue Sea. Tell me, Mr. Franklin, have you ever known anyone with Alzheimer's? No. What if you could end all that suffering with a single pill? Give me till Monday morning, 48 hours. I'll give you results that'll skyrocket your stock price. In the most advanced research facility in the world. Wow. Beneath its glassy surface, a world of gliding monsters. A team of specialists is working against the clock. Did someone order the fish? On an experiment to benefit mankind. Sharks never show any loss of brain activity as they age. We're this close to the reactivation of human brain cell. But before they can save millions of lives... Tell me I didn't see that. They recognize that gun. It's impossible. Sharks do not swim backwards. They can't. They'll have to find a way to save their own. Just what the hell did you do to those sharks? Did you feel something? Jim and I use gene therapies to increase their brain mass. 
What is that? As a side effect, the sharks got smarter. Somebody, please, tell me what that is. Searching for a cure for Alzheimer's disease, Dr. Susan McAllister invites billionaire Russell Franklin to Aquatica, a state-of-the-art underwater laboratory and testing facility in the middle of the ocean with the hope that he would further invest in her and her research. The research taking place on the isolated facility includes genetically enhancing the brains of mako sharks to harvest the disease-battling enzymes. What was supposed to be a visit for Russell Franklin turns into something more when a storm hits the facility the hyper-intelligent sharks strategize to flood it and hunt down the team, killing them off one by one. We'll quickly run through the cast. We have Saffron Burroughs as Dr. Susan McAllister, Thomas Jane as Carter Blake, LL Cool J as Sherman Preacher Dudley, Jacqueline McKenzie as Jan Higgins, Michael Rappaport as Tom Scoggins, Stellan Skarsgård as Dr. Jim Whitlock, Ada Totoro as Brenda Kearns and Samuel L. Jackson as Russell Franklin. Deep Blue Sea was written by Duncan Kennedy, Donna Powers and Wayne Powers and is directed by Rennie Harlan. Of course, of course it's directed by Rennie Harlan. And it's not to be confused with The Deep Blue Sea, the 2011 drama starring Rachel Weisz and Tom Hiddleston, nor the stage play that that is based on. The inspiration for Deep Blue Sea came not from its more famous and critically acclaimed cousin Jaws, but like Jaws, a real-life shark attack inspired writer Duncan Kennedy, who, as a kid in the 1980s, saw a dead shark attack victim on a beach in Queensland, Australia. The gruesome sight stayed with him, giving him nightmares of being chased by sharks in flooded hallways that could read his mind. The sharks that could read his mind, not the hallway, just to be clear. But that wasn't his only interaction with the creatures. In the 90s, while holidaying at the Great Barrier Reef, he and his wife booked a dinghy to visit Middle Island and heard shouts of shark coming from the beach. A huge shark was chasing fish. And as they were on this tiny boat, the shark went underneath the boat, almost capsizing it. Once they reached the island, they caught sight of a sunken, abandoned observatory that reminded him of the nightmares he had as a child. Further into the holiday, at a beef farm, they were using genetically modified growth hormones and they told the couple that it made the cows more aggressive. So Duncan Kennedy had been chased by sharks in corridors, an abandoned observatory, growth hormones causing aggression and a petrifying idea of man-eating sharks. It's hardly rocket science to suggest these form the basis of what would become Deep Blue Sea. Deep Blue Sea was the third screenplay written by Duncan Kennedy who was a graduate of USC Film School and worked as an uncredited designer on movies like Terminator 2, and the screenplay itself was originally titled Deep Red. He wrote both the treatment and a screenplay which took eight weeks for both. He conversed with scientists at Moat Marine Lab on shark physiology and also squalamine and cancer research, 
Squalamine is a steroid polyamine conjugate compound with a broad spectrum antimicrobial activity and anti-anglogenic activity found in the stomach and liver of the spiny dogfish shark. It was studied as a potential cancer drug and as a potential treatment for the wet macular degeneration, but as of 2018 had not succeeded in phase 3 trials for any use. Deep Red became Deep Blue Sea once he finished his script, which was a spec script, an uncommissioned script that was eventually bought by Warner Brothers, who won over two other bidders. Deep Blue Sea remained in development of Warner Brothers for a few years before Rennie Harlan became attached to the project, but it had already been through some script changes at that point. Originally seen as Jaws meets Jurassic Park, Warner Brothers also wanted to emulate the tense horror of Ridley Scott's Alien. It's worth noting at this point, I've done episodes on Jurassic Park, Jaws and Alien. Rennie Harlan probably needs no introduction. Die Hard 2, Cliffhanger, previous episode 88 on The Long Kiss Goodnight. And The Long Kiss Goodnight was his last directorial job before Deep Blue Sea. It was his working relationship with Samuel L. Jackson on that movie, which, by the way, The Long Kiss Goodnight is super fun and well worth checking out which led to him being cast in this movie. While Duncan Kennedy remains credited alongside husband and wife writing team Donna and Wayne Powers, many uncredited writers came on to amend Deep Blue Sea, including Charlie Mitchell, Michael Frost-Beckner, Simon Barry and Carty Talkington, who was writing as Clem Savage, with major script polishes done by producer Akiva Goldsman. While the basic premise didn't change too much from Kennedy's original script, in his draft, Susan McAllister was a likeable, passionate marine biologist researcher who arrives at the facility to figure out what's going on there. And Jim Whitlock was the scientist who secretly conducted the unethical and illegal genetic work on the sharks in the search for a human disease cure and keeps it secret even from the people at the facility. Donna and Wayne Powers made Susan McAllister a visiting Huntington's disease specialist with a touching, relatable backstory regarding her father's illness and her own coin-flip chances of getting the disease. Charlie Mitchell changed Susan McAllister back to a marine biologist and fundamentally combined the traits of McAllister and Whitlock into one character, with the Whitlock name shifting to her arm-losing, slightly bumbling and unfortunate shark bait research colleague, played by Stan Skarsgård, but kept the Powers family disease backstory to give the unethical work some actual purpose. But... That didn't help audiences actually empathise with Susan McAllister, as I'm going to come to towards the end of this episode. A new character called Preacher was also added by the Powers as a foul-mouthed chef, which was then amended by Charlie Mitchell to be more fastidious, and Akiva Goldsman added the aspect of Preacher questioning his faith. There were many other changes to this script and to certain key moments in this script, far too many for me to go through in this episode. But the late 90s specifically was a bit of a breeding ground for creature features. Anaconda had come out in 1997. Deep Rising had come out in 1998. And that's another really fun movie. That's directed by Stephen Summers, who also directed The Mummy, which, as you know, is the greatest movie ever made. Deep Rising is a hell of a lot of fun, though, and emulates The Mummy quite a bit. And in 1999, we would get Lake Placid and Deep Blue Sea. And these movies would eventually become the low-budget, bad CG asylum movies in the 2010s. But for a brief period, B-movie creature features were a thing in Hollywood. And for anyone who didn't grow up in that period of the late 90s, imagine Sharknado, but actually having money spent on it. And movies like these just aren't made today. And it's a wonderful snapshot of late 90s, early 2000s monster movie cinema that just really, really appeals to me. I enjoy all of those movies. Anaconda, Deep Rising, Lake Placid, Deep Blue Sea. I mean, some of them are better than others, let's be honest. 
but they're all really appealing in their own ways. Deep Blue Sea was filmed at Fox Baja Studios near Rosarita, Baja, California, Mexico, containing the world's largest water tanks and stages designed for filming on water. Originally built by 20th Century Fox for the reconstruction of the RMS Titanic for James Cameron's Titanic, it's 51 acres of unobstructed land overlooking the Pacific Ocean and 2,000 feet of coastline with five stages, four indoor and outdoor water tanks with a combined volume of over 20 million gallons fed by a filtration seawater plant were perfect for the filming of Titanic and even more perfect as the main Aquatica set as an infinite horizon tank which adjoins and overlooks the Pacific Ocean. Other movies filmed at Fox Beja include Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World, which will come to this podcast eventually, Pearl Harbor and Tomorrow Never Dies. Rennie Harlan made the decision early on in production to show as much of the shark as possible unlike Jaws, obviously, which kept the shark hidden due to the problems they had with the animatronic. Luckily, 20 plus years later, technology had come on leaps and bounds and the Mako sharks in Deep Blue Sea would be a mix of animatronic and CGI sharks with real sharks, which were done to the end of filming. The sets for Deep Blue Sea were designed to be submerged and others were built on sound stages with fish tanks as windows to appear if they were underwater. The animatronic sharks, which still look fantastic, by the way, one of my favourite things about this movie, and you know I'm a huge fan of practical effects, but the animatronic sharks are spectacular in this movie. They were created by the special effects team headed by Walt Conti, who also built Willy for Free Willy and the Anaconda for Anaconda. Conti and his team spent eight months studying and replicating real-life Mako sharks, including replicating the multifaceted jaw of sharks, the team watched video of real Makos swimming frame by frame, then borrowed equipment and technology that's typically used in 747s and built the sharks as self-contained units. The remote-controlled machines had 1,000 horsepower engines, weighed 8,000 pounds and swam on their own without the use of external wires or apparatus at up to 30 miles an hour. So these sharks, they looked real, they acted real. Imagine what it was like to be in the water with one of these animatronics. They built 4.5 sharks, they built three 15-foot Makos, which played the first-gen sharks, and 1.5 Generation 2 sharks, which represented that first-generation's 28-foot-long progeny. And these animatronic sharks, despite not being totally accurate in their biology, are still mind-blowingly impressive to watch on screen. And when I say biology, this comes from an actual shark scientist, and I watched a YouTube video specifically from a shark scientist who watched this movie and he specifically mentions that shark skin isn't smooth like a dolphin's skin. It actually consists of thousands of scales allowing sharks to swim aerodynamically through the water. And if you imagine, if you are cooking a fish at home and you're descaling a fish, the scales go in one direction. And if you try and move those scales in another direction, you get resistance. And sometimes you get a little bit of pain and so when Carter Blake is rubbing his hands back to front on the shark, in real life, he'd be shredding his hands because shark scales are sharp. It's also one of the reasons why sharks can't swim backwards because they're just not physically able because of their physiology. So regardless of a shark's intelligence or how big their brain is, they simply can't swim backwards. And just because a shark is smart or has an enlarged brain does not mean it understands physics because there's a difference between intelligence and knowledge. But, you know, I'm nitpicking about this movie because I think this movie is super fun. But really, intelligent sharks don't mean knowledgeable sharks. But anyway, 
Deep Blue Sea was clearly the result of much collaboration, but ultimately the idea that humans mess with nature for their own gain emulated Jurassic Park. Samuel Jackson was also in Jurassic Park, and he was originally up for the role of preacher. But his agent didn't think he was right for the part, and the Russell Franklin part ended up being created for Jackson, a part which seemed destined to be the hero of the movie. Franklin, who'd famously survived an avalanche, potentially with maybe a little bit of cannibalism, it's not really very clear, but something he says alludes to either murdering someone or cannibalising them, I'm not really sure. But he had seven pages of a rousing speech monologue. And while Deep Blue Sea isn't really known for its incredibly witty script and well-defined characters, this seven-page monologue all about how they were going to get out of the situation, how they were going to survive and likening it to ice, well, Samuel L. Jackson thought it was naff, really. He and visual effects supervisor Jeff Oaken had worked together several times in the past. They were good friends. Jackson suggested to Oaken that they just kill him off before he even finishes the monologue. Jackson starts performing the scene and they did 20 takes. And basically all Samuel Jackson just wants was to just get to the spot in the scene where he's going to get killed off. And he was basically just getting there quicker and quicker every single time. Rennie Harlan starts to get quite frustrated. Samuel L. Jackson explains to Rennie Harlan that there's no way that he can say this cheesy dialogue. And Jeff Oakham steps in and suggests their idea to kill Russell Franklin before he even finishes his monologue to surprise the audience. Reportedly, Samuel L. Jackson's words to Jeff Oaken, when Oaken said he could kill him before he reached the intended edge of the pool, were, just kill me, the sooner you kill me, the happier I'll be. Originally, the scene was shot as the whole sequence without Jackson reading the seven pages of dialogue, but with a stand-in doing it. Oaken put the shark attack scene together as a standard horror scene, and the movie was sent for audience testing with Rennie Harlan in attendance. The feedback for that scene was, well, the phrase Rennie Harlan, you suck, was used. Frank Uriosti was brought onto the movie to recut it to make the scene funny and cheesy instead of serious horror. And as soon as Jackson got into the required position, the scene was taken to Hammerhead Productions for the CG shark work where visual effects supervisors Jamie Dixon and Rebecca Marie and technical effects supervisor Thad Beer worked on the digital shark as well as the digital double of Jackson. Hammerhead was a relatively brand new studio and Thad Beer wrote the tools they used for the image creation with rendering by Pixar's Renderman. It was an exciting prospect for them to work on Deep Blue Sea and work on arguably the most famous scene in the movie. When it came to crediting the Hammerhead team for their work, a number of artists didn't make the cut due to Warner Brothers being quite stingy with credits. To get back at them, the team added shark-based middle names to their requested credits. To this day, for Deep Blue Sea only, Jamie Dixon is credited as Jamie Great White Dixon, Rebecca Marie as Rebecca Mako Marie, and Thad Beer as Thad Tiger Beer. But to this day, Deep Blue Sea excels at its practical effects and stunts, even though one didn't quite go as planned. As Stellan Skarsgård's character is hooked up to the helicopter during the storm, the other characters run to the cargo bay, the actors got accidentally hit by three tons of water, which threw them off their feet and into some boxes. The actors weren't harnessed at the time, but stayed in character despite the accident, and this scene is the scene that makes it into the movie. I mentioned test screenings changed Samuel L. Jackson's death scene, and like my best friend's wedding, test screenings really did help shape Deep Blue Sea for the better most notably the ending of the movie. The original ending had Saffron Burroughs' character Susan McAllister escape the shark-infested water and not only live, but save the character of Carter Blake. 
test audiences hated Susan just as much as they hated Julianne Potter getting a happily ever after. They saw Susan as the villain, the person experimenting on the sharks, and the reason why the sharks were what they were. When test audiences saw the movie a month before release, it was clear that Susan couldn't survive to the end. A somewhat romance between the characters of Susan and Carter had led to a kiss at the finale, and scenes of, well, I guess what you'd call flirting are still in the movie, but it was clear that as the primary villain, Susan had to get her comeuppance. This led to a one-day reshoot at the Universal Studios tank to show Susan sacrifice herself to save Carter, LL Cool J's character Preacher survive his shark attack, and be the one to save Carter and stop the final shark from escaping the facility. CG was used not only on the sharks in the new ending, but also to remove Saffron Burrows from certain scenes. And it's a good job LL survived, otherwise we wouldn't have got Deepest Bluest at the end. Obviously, I joke, we would have got Deepest Bluest anyway. It's quite legendary. And that not only saved the life of Preacher, but the production realised what a treasure they had in LL Cool J, who did many of his own stunts, including the fall down the stairs, and so his screen time in the movie was actually increased. His bird, however, would meet an untimely end. While they couldn't afford a trained parrot, they ended up with two parrots, one who could sit on LL's shoulder and the other who could fly on command. And while the science in this movie is suspect, to say the least, such as physics in water, there is literally none in this movie, the strength of the facility's glass, I mean, you would kind of think it might be a little bit stronger than that. And as I mentioned shark biology, sharks and their assistance in treating human diseases is actually real. Danish pharmaceutical company Lundbeck and US research firm Oceanics have been using shark antibodies to help find treatments for Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. It's very early research, but how cool is it that Deep Blue Sea predicted the future of Alzheimer's treatment? I will pop a link to an Express article detailing that in the show notes because it is quite a fascinating read. In many ways, Jaws cemented the shark movie and the fear of going into the water, but Deep Blue Sea revived it and ultimately led to the likes of Sharknado, Mega Shark vs. Giant Octopus, as well as the slightly more serious shark thrillers like Open Water and The Shallows. It skirts the line between serious shark movie and goofy popcorn flick, and it endures because of that. It's a creature feature and a disaster movie, and appeals to lovers of both. Its relatively, at the time, unknown cast allowed you to root for anyone, and then be completely surprised when they killed off the most well-known actor. Imagine a John Wick movie, killing off Keanu Reeves halfway through. It just wouldn't happen. Which, I guess, brings me on to my favourite part of each episode that I do, and that is the obligatory Keanu reference. Jess was a huge fan of Keanu Reeves, obviously. We watched a lot of his movies together. So this is a part of the podcast where I try and link the episode that I'm featuring with Keanu Reeves. And really, quite difficult to link Keanu to a shark movie. But I will just say that The Matrix came out a few months before Deep Blue Sea. And when Deep Blue Sea came out, the week it came out, The Matrix was still at number 23 in the US box office charts. It was actually one place above The Mummy, which was at 24, because 1999 was a quality year for cinema. There were so many amazing movies that came out in 1999. And you could argue that The Matrix is probably better than Deep Blue Sea, but Deep Blue Sea, hell of a lot of fun. And genuinely... I think Keanu would love this movie. Let's talk about the music. The composer was Trevor Rabin, and he didn't want to emulate John Williams' famous Jaws themes, and instead used orchestral and choral arrangements to electronic soundscapes for the score for Deep Blue Sea. And of course, if you have 
a rapper like LL Cool J in your movie, he's going to sing the theme tune. He contributed two tracks to the soundtrack, obviously Deepest Bluest, parenthesis Shark's Fin, which, as I said, one of the greatest songs to ever come from a movie, full stop, and also another track called Say What. They were both on the credits. And as I said, 1999 is seen by many as one of the greatest years for cinema. And Deep Blue Sea was let loose into an ocean of some truly genre-defining movies. On its release on the 30th of July 1999, it was released the same week as Julia Roberts and Richard Gere reunited for Runaway Bride. It still opened at a respectable third at the box office, with Runaway Bride at one and The Blair Witch Project holding steadfast at two. It also came out the same week as the Iron Giants limited release. Furthermore, its second week it dropped to fifth, as The Sixth Sense and The Thomas Crown Affair bumped it down. Mystery Men, which I've also done an episode on, came in at sixth that week. The summer of 1999 is basically a who's who of classic movies that everyone knows. So really, the fact that this little shark movie did as well as it did is actually quite miraculous. It did really well to compete with all of these amazing movies. Deep Blue Sea grossed $73.7 million in the US and Canada and $91 million internationally, giving it a $165 million worldwide gross on a budget of $60 million. So it did really decent business. Critically, of course, critics were mixed. Most enjoyed its high production value B-movie horror thrills. You're not coming to Deep Blue Sea for anything other than B-movie horror thrills and high production values because it has both of those in spades. It's currently 59% on Rotten Tomatoes. It's classified as rotten, which I think is slightly unfair, but I get that a lot of people don't like this movie. I really, really enjoy this movie. There have been two straight-to-DVD sequels, Deep Blue Sea 2 in 2018 and Deep Blue Sea 3 in 2020. I have not seen either. I've seen clips from both of those and they look pretty naff, I'll be honest. It's actually a little bit baffling. They didn't do a sequel sooner than 2018 because you would think they'd bring out a quick sequel to this. In 2019, for the 20th anniversary, that was celebrated by a screening at the TCL Chinese Theatres in Hollywood. That was attended by Thomas Jane and other cast members. Thomas Jane also stayed for a post-screening Q&A. Usually, at this point, I would move over to social media comments. But because this episode is slightly different, it's coming after a bit of a break, a period away from the podcast, I decided to not include any social media comments. And I want to specifically apologise to Andy because perennial commenter Andy did provide a comment for Deep Blue Sea. And I'm obviously not using that comment and I'm not using any comments only because I don't feel like this is an episode for people to comment on. And I think that's mainly because I wasn't sure how I'd feel doing this episode. The actual shark portion of the episode, the actual talking about the movie itself, is fine. <laughs> that is really easy for me. I can kind of switch off. But I want to end this episode on a tribute for Jess. And I didn't feel like adding other people's comments was something that I really wanted to do on this episode. So I do apologise, Andy, for not using your comment. But here are my closing thoughts anyway on Deep Blue Sea. There are hundreds and hundreds of shark movies out there, and I'm a big fan of most of them. Not a huge fan of anything with teeth, just generally, but shark movies I really enjoy. I really love the cheesy, bad sci-fi movies. I've seen most of those as well, and I don't watch them because they're good. It's more that they're so bad. I enjoy the fact that they're so bad. And Deep Blue Sea isn't a deep movie, although it tries to be. It tries to warn us of what happens when we mess with nature. 
But while the movie might tell us that sharks did all this, as I said, I really don't think intelligent sharks can prepare or plan for a storm. The sharks didn't flood the facility by way of planning the flood. The facility flooded and the sharks took advantage. And Jaws will always be the big daddy of shark movies, mostly because it's actually about the humans and their experiences rather than the sharks. And that really is the genius of Jaws. Deep Blue Sea retains its podium in shark movies as it's the right amount of serious, thoughtful human endeavours and pulpy B-movie thrills. It clearly pays homage to Jaws several times with key beats, as well as giving us the right amount of cheesy popcorn fun. Really, the only modern movie that does something similar is The Meg. And even then, The Meg just doesn't feel as fun as this feels. Deep Blue Sea is trying so hard to be a cautionary tale like Jurassic Park, but it doesn't have the deft direction or the character growth or development. But then it doesn't need well-developed characters because these people are all going to die. The sharks, in all of their glass and steel door breaking, oven turning on glory are there and in animatronic form, look and move fantastically. The CG sharks, haven't even really mentioned the CG sharks, they are a little hit and miss, especially the Samuel L. Jackson eating one, but it's 23-year-old CG. You can forgive it, I think. I miss big budget creature features with high production values. Most recently, the only one that springs to mind is Godzilla vs. Kong. And even then, that was more of a CG smackdown. It didn't have the real tangible practical effects that I really, really love. Deep Blue Sea is a rare gem that delivers R-rated thrills and gore, smart suspense. And while Renny Harlan can be a bit hit or miss in that you either love his stuff or you hate it, this is definitely one of his best, most memorable movies. Could it be better? Sure. Does it need to be? No, not really. Did anyone order the fish? And I'll be honest, Deep Blue Sea was always in the schedule for this month. I've moved the schedule around a little bit, but I was always going to do Deep Blue Sea. And then my original plan was Jess was going to turn 18 this month. So we were going to do a special episode on cats. But obviously, all of that has now changed. It made sense to have Deep Blue Sea as a tribute to Jess because she loved fish. She usually ate tuna and not shark. She loved tin tuna. It was one of her favourite treats. And then towards the end, she wasn't even eating tuna. That, along with some other things, was how I knew she was really not well. I took time off this podcast just before the episode on My Best Friend's Wedding came out because Jess was getting sicker and sicker. And... Personally, I'll be forever grateful that I did that because I got to spend that final week and a half with her, which means everything. And to be honest, we didn't really do much. We just watched movies in the evenings. And that was something that we did a lot during her almost 18 years of life. Almost every movie I saw at home, I watched with her. And she preferred some more than others. She was obsessed last year with the cat in the Pixar movie Soul. And as I was considering what I was going to do, for her for this podcast i considered covering soul but while the subject matter is kind of not really something i find easy to talk about right now as i said i plan to cover cats and i'm no longer covering cats because i don't feel like i can cover cats at the moment just because that was something that i was going to do for her and with her so i might do cats at some point but I'm not going to be going to Cats. And that's not just because I don't like the movie Cats. I find the movie Cats very strange. The movie Cats has a really, really interesting story behind it. So I kind of do want to talk about Cats, but not right now. I don't know how many people know 
the story of verbal diorama and how verbal diorama actually came to be is something that I have mentioned a couple of times, but I've never really gone into a great deal about it. But verbal diorama was a podcast born of grief. My granddad passed away a couple of months before the first episode, and it was his death and a promise to him that basically created this podcast. This podcast, I struggled to get it off the ground in 2018. And then at the end of 2018, my granddad died. And that was basically a catalyst. That was how the podcast came about. And Jess will always be a part of this podcast, no matter what happens in the future. One of the things that I will be so forever grateful for is this podcast has immortalized her forever on the internet. Not many cats can claim to be as famous or indeed infamous as she was. The feedback that I got from listeners for her was that they loved her. The most downloaded episode on the first day that I've ever had on this podcast was Gremlins 2, The New Batch. And that was an episode that she appeared on. She appeared with me on live stream for The Cure. She showed her bum on camera. And basically people donated to charity purely because of her and how much they loved her and how much they loved her personality and her sass. And she had the best, most loving personality. And I got to experience that for almost 18 years. And I'm so grateful for that. Animals could change your life. They do nothing but show you unconditional love. And this is a movie about smart animals and there was no animal smarter than Jess. You wait your whole life for a single moment and then suddenly it's tomorrow. That's a quote from this movie, by the way. And this is not the first time that I've got emotional on this podcast. And this is not the first time that I'm not going to censor that emotion. If you have a glass in your hand, raise it for Jess. Me, I'm actually going to get something deepest, bluest made to remember her. And I will put some photos on social media of the thing that I'm getting made for her. I'm not sorry that this episode is making me emotional because if we don't have emotion and we don't have love and we don't have things that make us laugh and make us cry, then we have nothing. Jess was everything to me. She was my constant companion. She was my best friend. And I will miss her more than I can say. And verbal diorama continues in her memory. With that, Thank you for listening. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on Deep Blue Sea. And only on Deep Blue Sea. You don't need to tell me about the crying. I know about that. But you can tell me your thoughts on Deep Blue Sea. And you can also get involved and you can help this podcast grow. If you love this podcast, you don't need to take God's oldest killing machine and give it will and desire or knock us all the way to the bottom of the goddamn food chain. You can get involved. You can have your comments read out in episodes. I am going to do comments in the future. I put posts up on social media for thoughts on movies, usually on a Saturday. If you leave a comment, I'll read it out in the next episode. You can also support this podcast without paying a single penny. You can do something like leave a rating or review wherever you found this podcast. Ideally, give it five stars. Please don't give it a one star and say, I listened to an episode and she cried. <laughs> 
honestly, I don't think my emotions can handle that right now. Maybe give me five stars. She cried. Because, like I say, this is not the first episode where I've cried. This is not a first for this podcast. You can also retweet or like posts on social media. What I would really love for this episode, I really, really want this episode to be huge. And I want it to be huge, not for me and not for the crying. Please, God, no. I want it to be huge for Jess because she deserves that. And she would love that. Genuinely, she loved all the first and all the attention she got. She got so much love from everyone who knew her. She loved strokes. She loved humans. And most of all, for some reason, she loved me more than anything in the world. So please help me make this episode really, really big for her. And you can do that. The easiest way is by telling your friends and family about this episode, about this podcast. Get the word out there. And let's make Jess the superstar celebrity cat that she was born to be. If you like this episode on Deep Blue Sea, you might also like one of the following episodes. I've already mentioned them. I've done episode 57 on Jurassic Park, episode 88 on The Long Kiss Goodnight, episode 106 on Jaws, and episode 108 on Alien. Obviously, as I said, Deep Blue Sea borrows liberally from Jurassic Park and Jaws and Alien, and The Long Kiss Goodnight is one of Rennie Harlan's best movies. And it's got some great Samuel L. Jackson in there too, as does Jurassic Park. As always, give me feedback on my recommendations. Let me know what you think. The next episode is actually going to be more B-movie, high production values, great effects, an effective and ruthless satire with another of the truly great 80s and 90s directors. And this is one that I've been looking forward to doing for such a long time. Um, And that is Paul Verhoeven's Starship Troopers. Starship Troopers is coming next in all its bug-splatting glory. Would you like to know more? And the answer to that question is yes, and please come back next week. I promise I won't cry next week. Actually, I don't make that promise. There's no promises that I will not cry on a certain day. As I mentioned, you can support this podcast without paying a single penny. But if you do want to support this podcast financially, you can sign up to the Patreon at verbaldiorama.com slash Patreon. And you can join the wonderful, amazing, supportive people who support this podcast financially. They are Simon E, Sade, Claudia, Simon B, Laurel, Derek, Vern, Kristin, Kat, Andy, Mike, Griff, Luke, Emily, Michael, Scott, Mark, Brendan, Ian M, Lisa, Sam, Will, Jack, Dave, Chris, Stuart, Ian D and Jason. What does an £8,000 Mako shark with a brain the size of a flathead V8 engine and no natural predators think about? they think about the patrons of this podcast probably and how awesome they are. I do also have a merch store. It's verbaldiorama.com slash merch where you can buy the mummy inspired t-shirts and you can support this podcast if you wish to. If you want to get in touch and complain about the crying, you can email me verbaldiorama at gmail.com. You can also pop over to verbaldiorama.com and fill out the little contact form on there. And I am still writing stuff for film stories. I haven't been writing stuff for a few weeks because of everything that's been going on with Jess. But the podcast features will be back soon. And I am still writing for the magazine as well. So please check out filmstories.co.uk. And finally, for Jess. Bye. Movie Shenanigans.